Cryptosophy number 13, The Litany Against Fear. Hi everyone, it's Doyle Baxter here. I, I wanted to give a little bit of an introduction to this conversation that's maybe a bit different from the way that I normally uh, conduct these. The conversation that Max had and I, uh, Max and I had on this podcast uh, was incredibly sweeping. Um, in retrospect, I think we probably attempted to uh, discuss too much or go too deep. Uh, but nonetheless, what I think we did is try to understand certain things about the current cultural moment that we find ourselves in. You know, specifically things having to do with COVID and censorship and um, everything that's just going on. And ultimately, what we ended up having a discussion about um, towards the end was how the impetus really is on every individual human being to live a life of courage, uh, to live a life radically opposed to anything resembling fear. And, you know, that's kind of why I've decided to intro this episode and title it The Litany Against Fear. Um, I encountered in uh, Shakespeare, actually, in the Julius Caesar, an incredibly profound quote uh, that goes like this. A coward dies a thousand times before his death, but the valiant taste of death but once. It seems to me most strange that men should fear, seeing that death, a necessary end, will come when it will come. You know, this is just true, and this is, I think, the fundamental foundation of the human condition. We human beings have something of an immortal mind, uh, certainly an immortal imagination. We can picture what it would be like to live forever, and yet we're bounded, tragically bounded, by the fact of death. And I think, interestingly, that the tragic fact of death is actually what makes it possible to live with any significance or meaning. I think this is the story that's actually told um, in, for example, Gawain and the Green Knight. Um, there was a recent film adaption of it uh, in 2021, I believe, that Max and I discussed on the podcast towards the end. But it's also, in some sense, embedded in two of the most popular stories of um, recent years. And we talk about this at length towards the end of the conversation as well. Namely, the, the evil characters in Harry Potter and the evil characters of the Marvel Universe, namely Thanos. Those two characters fear death. And that fear of death is embedded in their own names. Voldemort means the flight from death. And Thanos is an abbreviated version of a name from Greek that means the immortal one. These are two evil characters that fear death, and it's actually their fear of death that drives them to their evil. It's the good characters in those stories that have no fear of death, and it's that f that have no fear of death, or rather a healthy embrace of the fear of death that leads them to their virtue, unlike those evil characters. So at this point, I might be rambling on just a little bit. Um, but I want to uh, encourage you to really stick with this conversation. Like I said, it's wide and sweeping, and we start in places uh, that are perhaps really surprising given what I've discussed here in this introduction. 
Um, but I hope that you'll find this conversation really fruitful. Uh, I hope that it'll provide some new perspective on ways to think about um, the political problems of our day. And I hope that whether you're on the left or the right, you find that we have a fair diagnosis of the fundamental fear of death and the fundamental fear of the stranger that sort of motivate all what I would call politically pathologi uh, pathological thought. Um, so anyway, I just wanted to end this um, end this introduction with a, uh, a thing from Dune. Um, I don't know if you've seen Dune or read it. I actually haven't, but I encountered this, uh, the litany against fear um, in a song form, and I just wanted to read it here as we kick off this episode 13 of the Cryptosophy podcast. I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. I will face my fear. I will permit it to pass over me and through me. And when it has gone past, I will turn the inner eye to see its path. Where the fear has gone, there will be nothing. Only I will remain. We spend you know, at least half an hour of our day with our eyes closed so that we may, but that we may better understand the, uh, the darkness. The Grand Canyon has opened up in our world. The fissure, the crack, grows wider every day. That's what it looks like to me. It's like, here you are, suffering away. What makes it worthwhile? Right? And by our very posture, by our very being, we will let the world know. Okay, the recording is live. Um, it's 8.39 p.m. on Thursday, January 6th. Max. We're live on Cryptosophy. How are you doing? Good, good. How are you today, Doyle? I'm I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Um, you know, happy ja happy January sixth. Oh well, thank you. Um, you might not know that today is actually a religious holiday for me. So, um, yeah, I I I take January sixth really seriously. It's the feast of the Epiphany in a more traditional calendar. Um, it's been kind of a, an ironic sort of thing to have January 6th be talked about so much today and like throughout the last year um, because I don't think everybody and anybody else celebrates anything on on January 6th but uh, yeah um, it's it's been a good day uh, it's the busy season uh, at my day job so um, working really hard long hours right now getting ready for um, our big start date which is coming up here in a couple of weeks um, but what about you how uh, how are things things are good uh, I did want to say I celebrate January 6th as the day that Mike Pence uh, certified the election for the greatest president in um, in history, possibly. Uh, but uh, no, things have been good, busy as well, and uh, we're still in this crazy world. Um, but I think to turn things off, we wanted to uh, start with what we've been thinking about. And I know you've been thinking about some magical things. So by yeah. all means. Yeah. I mean, we like to kick off the cryptosophy show just kind of with a you know low intensity segue, like, hey, what have you been thinking about reading, podcasts you've been listening to? Um, 
And, you know, one of the things that has been on my mind, and, and I've told you a little bit about this, Max, but I hope to go into a little bit more depth uh, than I've been able to maybe um, in our texting conversations. Um, as I mentioned at the top of the show, like, yeah, today's January 6th, which is the, um, when we, uh, as a traditional Christian, you would celebrate the Feast of the Epiphany today. And um, that would, that's because we're kind of beyond the the 12 days of Christmas, right? And like, that's the epiphany. It's the day we celebrate that the the Magi, the three wise men arrive after having followed the star to Bethlehem. And there's just a couple of interesting historical little factoids um, I want to talk about and then like kind of reflect on with you before we dive into the, you know, more substantial meat of tonight's conversation. But one of the things that's really fascinating is the, um, is the mere fact that January 6th as a day for the epiphany, the celebration of the epiphany of Christ is really interesting. The words epiphany and theophany in Greek are related. And in the Greek Orthodox Church, they still would actually call today theophany rather than epiphany. Um, Theophany means sort of like the revelation of the God, right? And it's sort of the day that we celebrate that Christ makes his divinity known to us. And that's celebrated through uh, primarily three things. And it's interesting. First is the actual epiphany, right? So the arrival of those magi with their gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Uh, The second thing is the baptism of our Lord when he's baptized in the river Jordan by John. There's the, the, the voice from the cloud saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And the dove descends upon him, all that stuff. And then the third thing that's traditionally celebrated with this theophany or this epiphany of the divine nature of Jesus is actually, and surprisingly, his first miracle, which is the transformation of water into wine at the wedding of Cana in um, the gospel of John. You meant to say his best miracle, right? Yes. Well, I don't know about his best. I mean, but it's definitely, uh, definitely his first. I'm a big fan. So what's interesting is a couple of things. So like I said, those three things, the Magi, um, the baptism and the transformation of water into wine are kind of all associated with this theophany of Jesus, his revelation to the world of his divine like status. And we celebrate it on January 6th. And Any student of Greek religion should have a lot of alarm bells going off in their head when I talk about this, because January 5th, the day before, is the day that a very similar feast is celebrated in the Greek religion, and that's the Theophany of Dionysus. Dionysus is the god of wine in the Greek tradition, Um, and what's interesting about him is that he was actually his father is Zeus and his mother is a human. And so there's actually in Dionysus's life um, questions, especially by his mother's sisters about whether or not he's actually a God. Right. And um, interesting fact, uh, Zeus impregnates um, Dionysus's mother, who I believe's name was uh, Semele. And she uh, asks, she gets tricked by Hera, Zeus's wife, because Hera is jealous. She gets tricked and asks Zeus to reveal himself to her in in his glory. And he reveals himself as a lightning bolt, strikes her dead, and the baby... Uh, comes out of her, the uh, the preformed baby of Dionysus, and Zeus sows Dionysus into his 
leg and gestates the baby Dionysus until his birth. And so he is, Dionysus is the God that's born of woman, but also like truly not born of woman, right? Because like he's really born of, from the thigh of Zeus. And so anyway, there's actually need when he goes to uh, Thebes, which is where his home homeland was and confronts the family of his mother, there's actually a need for a theophany. Like I'm not just a guy. I am, I need to be revealed and shown forth as the God that I am. And he does so traditionally by transforming water into wine. And that's the miracle that Dionysus performs to prove to everyone that he is the God that he says he is. And I tell you this story and you're like, well, goodness, that's just the Jesus story. And it's like, why? Yes, that is just the Jesus story. How did this happen? Um, and, you know, some of it is, is pretty complex. There's a couple of books that I would recommend uh, if you're interested by this question at all. Um, the first is called The Dionysian Gospel um, by a fellow named uh, Dennis MacDonald, which is more of like a scholarly approach a, a scriptural study of the gospel of John and Euripides Bacchae, which is all about uh, Dionysus, where he sort of goes into the textual um, reasons why you might, uh, why it's reasonable to believe that the gospel of John is actually based on Euripides play the Bacchae uh, in a, in a substantial way. That's a, that's a great book that I'd recommend more on the scholarly side. If you're looking for more of like a popular exploration of these topics um, that's still serious, but not at the same like level of like an act of, of academic writing, a book called uh, The Immortality Key by uh, Brian Murarescu um, also explores uh, some of these themes. So I've just been thinking today about, you know, the great, the great fact that, you know, when we celebrate Epiphany, what we are really celebrating is that Christ is a God for all of us, right? He's a universal character and he offers something to everyone where like, regardless of your background and like part of the reason why the Christian story has been able to like amalgamate and mix with and produce what it has produced um, in sort of this Greek and pagan context where all these stories seem to make sense is because this is a, a, of universal value is the claim. And if it's of truly universal value, then everything particular should not be destroyed, but rather be like brought into its own. And so I've just been kind of reflecting on the fact that, you know, today, January 6th, the epiphany is a great day to remember like that universality trumps everything, you know? And I think that some of this is actually really relevant to what we're going to talk about tonight. Um, you know, Christianity is, is ultimately a religion that tries to build bridges and not precisely so division. And um, I think it's kind of kind of ironic that that such a feast would fall on January 6th, which is now synonymous with like the great division uh, of our time. And so there's this great kind of cross symbolically that's being formed by January 6th, the Capitol protest and January 6th, the, the epiphany of our Lord, the unification of all things and the great division of the American culture. Um, and as we know, wherever there's a cross, there's going to be a crucifixion. So uh, let's, uh, let's go. What are you even thinking about, Max? Well, not, not too much. Um, 
a lot. I, I got a uh, textbook on on the modern warehouse, which uh, is very not exciting. It's a terrible textbook. Um, but I've been mostly studying my job is what that means. That's how we set up and operate the warehouse. Um, more recently, I had a friend bring over some canvases and acrylic paints. And uh, I didn't have a pencil to sketch or anything, but we just started painting and drinking wine and enjoying it. And I've never been an artist in any sense. Can't draw at all. Um, but it was a magical experience. And so I guess maybe not what I've been thinking about, but what I've been feeling is, you know, this this would have taken me maybe 50 bucks to do on my own one night. And um, I never did it. I never would have even thought of doing it. And it's just that sense of like, uh, there's so much out there to be explored and participate in. And it, it was, um, there was something spiritual about it, trying to figure out how colors work and canvas and mixing them, uh, being in a different headspace, which is one where you're trying to create image instead of language uh, or instead of product. Um, there was something fantastic about that. So if, if anyone can find any value in that, um, but yeah, if you uh, if you find something out of your interest or out of your comfort zone, I think I've I've started to question my own my own perception of what I enjoy because that experience was so was so enjoyable and so fulfilling in a way I hadn't hadn't experienced in a long time. Do you kind of regret that you had never really like explored that before? I think I regret I hadn't explored it in so long. So I was I was telling uh, my friend who I did this with Maggie that the last time I probably painted with acrylic was high school, probably about eight, seven or eight years ago, or maybe there was one college night. Uh, and then before that, I was in a middle school art class, but I, I never did that on my own or had any experience with that. So I think it's just the gap between those times that I regret the most. Yeah. And it's in a classroom setting. I don't think if you're if you approach that kind of activity from your own volition instead of from the assignment of a class, it's a completely different experience, especially if you think you're terrible at art or um, that's not something you have a, a general inclination towards because you start to approach the canvas not as like I need to get this done, but I'm trying to create something. And I think you know, that's exactly what I was trying to get at by doing something that you think is completely out of your purview, because it, the experience will just surprise you. Um, and this also links to the conversation I think we'll be having tonight, but I think we get so locked in ways of thinking, ways of doing, this is our group, this is the things I'm interested in, and we miss, I don't know, so many other parts of the human experience. But anyways, sorry to carry on a bit about that <laughs> no not at all not at all um i think it's interesting the way you kind of kind of linked linked those two things our, our listeners probably know better at this point than we do what we're going to talk about tonight because in some sense we'll have given it a title and i will have gotten to reflect on it enough to at least give it some kind of verbal introduction and we that has not happened yet and i think that tonight's conversation is going to be maybe a little bit difficult for us to begin. And it could, I, I kind of anticipate some rocky starts and hopefully we end up in, in something of, of a normal place. But I think that the way that you've teed it up in relation to, you know, your own experience of, of painting something that you haven't done in a long time 
is actually like really right. You know, it's I, I've been recently and I didn't talk about this in my segue, um, but I've been really trying to challenge myself recently to read some things that would have been that would be considered taboo in some of the circles that I run. And I don't really want to get too much into it right now, but um, I'm in a very interesting place and I'm really challenging my, my assumptions about the way the world is at a very deep kind of metaphysical level. And one of the outcomes has been one of, of great, like humility is I think the right word. It's like, there are really dramatic, dramatically different ways of approaching problems. And I would, I think that one of the things that happens when you start to really appreciate authentic diversity is that you become very, very skeptical of heavy handed unilateral attempts at doing anything. And I think that this is what has, um, you know, kind of at least recently for me, made me feel set apart. Like I really feel out of place right now in both like the modern sort of political climate, the modern media climate, like who do you listen to? Who's a trustworthy source? How do you find uh, reliable information? How do you come to believe things? Um, And why is it that we ostensibly need a notion of belief to talk about things that supposedly exist in a realm of pure fact? Right, because you shouldn't need belief to to uh, to assent to facts. Facts should be, you know, evident. Um, that's the whole point of them. And um, so, anyway, that might be like a little bit too of an abstract introduction. But essentially, what I'm trying to say is that um, I feel very estranged from many of the things that I've thought for a long time. And I think what unifies my estrangement is that I have become remarkably open to the fact that I'm wrong and the way that I think about things are wrong and the way that I want to think about things are wrong. And that sort of intellectual, you know, humility, and I don't mean to sound proud by stating that I'm humble, um, but I think that that approach to like broader things, like how should we structure society or how should we attempt to tackle you know, global scale problems like COVID or national scale problems, like, by the way, you know, the fact that still almost a quarter of adult Americans, you know, do believe that the election was rigged last year. Um, how do you square these problems and how do you solve them? I think what, where I'm, I'm at, I'm in a place right now where I'm more than willing than ever to say that I'm not really sure Um, And I don't really know that I could trust anyone that is sure about what to do about some of these like societal problems. And I think that rather like an attempt like this for just, you know, Max and Doyle to get together to at least talk about the problems as problems, bat around a few solutions and maybe try to get a little bit smarter in the process is is at least the right way to 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 get started in the in the path towards solutions. There's a there's a, a, a ton in that which I relate to. When I try to think about the dislocations in society that we've experienced in the last uh, four or five years, I have learned to frame them in terms of a fear response and uh, then a compartmentalized response. So there could be, uh, well, the easiest one is uh, fear of COVID, which is, 
fear or hatred of the unvaccinated. Um, there could be fear of racism, which is hatred of the police. Uh, these kind of binary, binary systems of thought that we've contracted society into. And I think what you're describing is a mode of being that's risking uncertainty, um, risking not knowing or being willing to admit not knowing, uh, but the willingness to overcome the fear all the same. And I think that that essential piece is where we find actually um, a lot of the people who, for instance, have been either canceled by big tech platforms or maligned in the media, people like Joe Rogan, Milo Yiannopoulos, Dave Chappelle. Um, and the, the thing that a lot of these people share is a levity and a humor um, and a non-constraint to uh, conventions or authorities. And I think that that describes it very well. I, I think we've either been bifurcated or we've learned to realize that our society is shifting in some way. And that shift requires uh, a levity and a humor, you know, rather than a catastrophizing or a, uh, any kind of homogenous thought. I don't know how that strikes you. Well, I think, I think I'd actually like to get maybe like a bit more concrete. Like what are we, what are we actually like talking about? So, I mean, do you want to maybe like bring up a few examples that, uh, that have been striking you recently and maybe we can, can start there and start to kind of hack through this? Sure. I mean, I think the biggest example in my mind was um, what lockdown did to everyone psychologically that I don't think many people have admitted or talked about, which is one, we all sat in our homes for at least a few weeks, or most people did. Um, and there was, there was a sense that we didn't know if the world was ending uh, around the same time or kind of interjecting in the same time. There was riots in cities. Um, apparently in 2020, we found that that our entire society was a racist scam, <laughs> which uh, might have come to a shock to a lot of people who are just trying to live normal lives. Um, there's been tech censorship and, you know, those little warnings on posts, which is uh, for real vaccine information, press one. Uh, there's there's so many of these stories in the last year or in the, sorry, in the last five years that feel like you know, false reality. But I think the, the weird thing about all of them is even if you don't believe in them anymore, for instance, that the American police are institutionally racist, the, the nature of the, the lie originally that there's a big problem of unarmed police shootings, it's, a, it's about 60 a year, usually less. Um, the big lie was that we all kind of felt like we had to believe them at first or whether COVID was really a risk to all of us. Uh, I think if you're, you know, if you're under 25, you have better chances of dying of many other things. But we all had, we all bought into them initially. And I think that kept a kind of prison on, uh, on the way we look at things. And so there was a silence. We can't just go out in the world and say, uh, you know, this COVID lockdown thing is bullshit, blah, blah, blah. We, we kind of had to capitulate to the lie. And that created a situation of, of absolutism, confusion, and then, as you were saying, uh, a feeling of being dislocated or away from the, the center. Yeah, okay, so your, your phrase there, like capitulating to the lie is a really interesting one because one of the things that's just true is that 
regardless of what you thought of COVID as it was breaking in March of 2020, February, March, April, um, at some point, we were all, I mean, everyone that could, I mean, obviously, it's typically considered more of an upper class or upper middle class problem of, you know, being able to actually quarantine and work from home. Um, but, but nonetheless, like, I mean, that was my experience where all of a sudden, it didn't matter what I thought, like, my employer said, our office is closed, you're working at home, if you need to bring your desk or chair or anything home with you, feel free. You know, and it's like, all of a sudden, okay, well, now I'm at home. And then what happened was that I proceeded to stay home. And like, all my restaurants were closed, all of my hangout spots were closed. Um, things finally opened up in the summer around my birthday. And the first time I was going out after, you know, the restaurants opened, um, we actually had to had to leave early, because of threats of uh, rioting and violence had been made in my city related to the the George Floyd shooting. And so it's like all of this was sort of happening all at the same time. And what was so strange about it is that it didn't matter that I had not yet been, you know, no one had convinced me or even attempted to convince me that this course of action was correct, right? It was like, this is what was handed down. This is what's to be done. You know, it's a shelter in place order from the governor of the state. And it's like, okay, we're doing this. But what's so strange about this is that we actually don't run our society this way. And I mean, I'm young, so there's probably plenty of examples, you know, counter examples to what I'm going to say. But my point is, is that we live in a society where by and large, for things to happen to you, you more or less have to be at least convinced to the, to the level of like, all right, I'll give this a shot myself. But with, um, with the pandemic, with the, with the lockdowns, it was like, there just weren't options. You couldn't go anywhere. Right. And so, and so as a result, there was no need for any level of public discourse to convince you or have a, have a space for reasonable discussions like this one of why we should be at home. And like, this is what I think is actually the, the sort of problem behind the problem. And I'm not trying to dwell on COVID in particular, because I'm actually not super interested in the pandemic per se. It's kind of boring, especially to talk about now in, you know, January of 2022, like it's been a minute, you know, um, what I'm more interested in is just why it's the case that more and more things are handed down unilaterally. And then whenever there's a counter countervailing voice, it must be, you know, promoting vaccine hesit hesitancy or disinformation or, hey, here's a link to the CDC's website about this, or don't forget to check out what the experts have written over here. And like these sorts of labels and warnings on on everything that are sort of in 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 my opinion meant to precisely stifle the idea that there's any conversation to be had is what's strange to me and that's what makes me feel unsettled and i think that that you know covid is just it's so convenient because we're sort of still in this um you know covid world but we had it to you know a lesser extent like in some of the examples that you mentioned um brexit is one that stands out for me as particularly jarring i remember um this is maybe going to be a little bit of a tangent so we'll we'll try and make sure we get back here but um uh, as a as a student of the middle ages i very much am 
a, a supporter of the old European monarchies. And I sort of, you know, like secretly pine for the day when all of the, all of the European countries are going to get their monarchs back. And uh, during the whole Brexit thing, my, uh, you know, young Doyle's uh, dream was that Brexit was going to happen. That was going to cause Scotland to leave the United Kingdom. And then Scotland might reinstate the Stuart monarchs, uh, the House of Stuart back as their kings. And the Jacobite line that had been, you know, taken away during the glorious revolution would be put uh, would be reinstated and so this is you know you know what i'm what i'm thinking about and dreaming of and all the while you know reading the same news sources as everybody else hearing the same things as everybody else yep never going to happen the brexit vote there's no way it's wildly unpopular people aren't going to vote vote against their own self-interest um, there's just no way that this is, this is going to happen. This is a far right wing conspiracy theory. Um, leaving the European Union not, is not going to solve any of these problems anyway. And then what happened? I don't know about you. I watched the returns for Brexit come in and they kept coming in and they kept coming in and to watch it in the United States. You're staying up, you know, you actually get to start it at a relatively decent hour because they're ahead of us in the calendar. But like you're even staying up really late in the United States to watch these returns come in and just closer and closer and closer. And then at the end of the night, they won. Yeah. And it was the same thing that happened essentially with Donald Trump's election that same year or the, uh, yeah, I think it was the same year, 2016 or right thereafter, um, where all of the experts, all of the people who knew all of the smart people, there wasn't room for a discussion. Like it's like, that crazy media, you know, racist homophobe, like there's no way he's going to be president of the United States. And it turns out like people don't really like when you tell them what they're supposed to think about something or someone. And I think that's precisely what we witnessed in, in Brexit. I think that's precisely what we witnessed in Donald Trump. And I think that to a certain extent that that's what we're experiencing now is that there are in general, two kinds of people and there's the people that will if you tell them what to think they'll kind of like flick flick you off and say no i'm gonna think the complete opposite and do the complete opposite um and then there's the people that are just ambivalent and the fact of the matter is is that causing a lot of people anger or resentment that comes from telling them how to think or how to feel or how to act is just not a good grounds for a healthy, cogent, peaceful society. Because like yeah. at the end of the day, like we're all human beings that have, have been endowed with our own powers of reason. And I, 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 what I find is just a great frustration with the fact that your point of view, whether it's you know because it's backed by the science or the experts or whatever, the fact checkers. It's like, no, people need to be given the benefit of having to be convinced of things. You don't just get to tell them like they're children. Precisely. I, I did want to tell you earlier, and I apologize for not saying this, but Doyle, I, I need you to know that I am uh, the science and to disagree with me is to disagree with the science. So I just wanted to put that out there to start. I, I think you, you've made a set of fantastic points and within these points, I do want to return to the notion of fear. And my question is, 
whether it's Brexit or Trump or COVID uh, or BLM or woke politics or apparently the emergence of the, uh, the far right, whether you talk about in Europe or the West or the new emerging power of China um, and climate change, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think we're talking about situations that the psychology of the population at large is one that is the human brain when it thinks with fear chemicals operating on it, when it's using the fear system. And there's, there's very interesting studies in terms of, um, for instance, people with generalized anxiety disorders. They'll tend to focus on one issue over and over and over again. So it's like, I have, this, I have this test in two weeks, I have to pass this test, I have to pass this test, I have to pass this test. And if someone were to come up to them and say, you know what, I know this professor, I've taken their tests before, here's the way to take that test. They would be like fully in, that's everything they need for their fear response. And our fear response is it's narrow, it's trying to run from something and protect ourselves from something. And it's a part of our brain that wants security, it wants safety and it wants simplicity. Um, there's a loud noise here, I run the opposite direction, that kind of thing. And I think that that kind of base psychology explains uh, a lot of what we're seeing in things, as you said, as you were mentioning, things becoming um, one way. You either believe this or you're canceled or you believe this or you're racist or you believe this and you're killing grandma with COVID. Um, and that is it's a way of manipulating populations. There's also a way for people to just try to keep living normal lives in difficult scenarios to, uh, to respond to fear. And so I think my question would be, what is the source of the fear in these cases? Because I think the fear is the cause of the more authoritarian or the more single-minded approaches that we see in politics and culture these days. Yeah. Okay. So this is super interesting. And, and I think to like, give it a fair shake, you sort of have to approach the fears that sort of exist on both sides of the proverbial aisle. Right. Because I think that um, it's really easy for like conservatively minded people like me to kind of dis or uh, to think less about the problems of our own side and focus more on the problems of the other side. And I think there's a lot of this that happens just in general, you know, so, and I'm guilty of it just like everybody else is, because I think there's in-group psychology is just part of, you know, human nature and something that we have to deal with. But I want to talk about the two sides, because I think the fear point is really significant, right? So on the, on the left, there are genuine, like, so specifically to things like COVID, there's a fear of death that is very much at the heart of many of the the policy points and things that get people riled up so it's like specifically in covid it's like well it's tangibly the fear of death it's like if i contract covid from an unvaccinated person or whatever then i have a chance of death and worse i have a chance of passing that chance of death um, to my friends my family my relatives i need to protect myself from death i need the vaccine i need a booster i need a mask I need to not see people to protect them. Like there's a genuine fear of death that is, you know, the, the motivator for, for all of the COVID things. And I think that similarly, the fear of death is what inspires a kind of really um, strong response to, uh, to climate issues, right? Because it's like, 
if the earth is really dying, like it's our only place to live in the solar system, by the way, like Elon Musk hasn't terraformed Mars yet, you know? So it's like, if we lose, if we lose earth, like the game is up. Right. And so, um, and like, that's almost fear of death on like an even more apocalyptic scale than something like COVID, but even that's kind of apocalyptic. Um, and, and by the way, I just want to note, like, it's worth, you know, just entertaining for a moment that um, things like disease, plague is, uh, you know, an older word for it, and global catastrophic disaster, like floods and earthquakes and fires, like these are the things that the prophets have foretold for centuries, you know, and it's like the people that fear these things, well, they fear them for good reason, because they're terrifying, you know, so I think like what what it is that we are afraid of on the left is truly like a physical death, right? Whether it's the death of the earth, death of myself through COVID. Um, and there's there's other things. Uh, I, mean, I mean, I think in, in the case of like um, the kind of Black Lives Matter, there's a real fear of death from, you know, racist, you know, police. Like there's all of the, like there's a lot of fear of death seems to be like a common, a common thread um, in kind of some of the, the more pathologized forms of, of, of left-wing thinking. On the right, it's a little bit more intriguing because it's not clear to me that it's necessarily a fear of death, though you could easily reason yourself there. Like there's a certain level of the fear of the stranger, right? The immigrant and like all of the nasty things that he brings along, like whether it's his culture or his disease or his loose morals or whatever it is that he might bring. Um, so you could, you know, argue sort of, that at the root or at the base in the ground of the right wing fear fears are also is also a fear of death. But it seems to me that when you think about the 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 fear of the stranger that you get in immigration with some of the other fears that you see on the right, particularly related to issues we've been talking around around censorship and um, yeah, yeah, silencing the First Amendment things, it seems to me that the the more the more pervasive fear on the right is that there's an, a, a deep, there's a deep like unfairness of this, of this system to me, like as a working person, right. Or as a, as a, as the human that I am, it's like, if we let these strangers in, they're going to take my job and I'm going to lose my job and I'm not going to be able to take care of my family. If, um, if, you know, they continue to silence these voices, you know, if, if, they continue to steal elections, then people like Trump who stand up for me are going to prevent me from, you know, being able to do this, do, do all of these things. And so it seems to me that like, there is like fear of death is always sort of like the underlying fear of underlying thing of all fear. But on the right wing side, it seems to be much more of like a fear of like my way of living, my way of life is what is at issue. Um, and so it's sort of the same thing and maybe couched in some different language. Um, but nonetheless, I think that one of the things that you've just been, I think, you know, trying the, one of the points you're trying to make is that when people are doing things out of fear, they typically do things wrong. Right. And, um, you, you don't say, you don't say, <laughs> and, and I think the thesis that I'd like to kind of, the thesis that I'd like to put out there is that decisions made out of fear are bad decisions. And therefore, 
people who seek to keep people in fear, I don't care what side of the aisle you're on. Like if you are a fear rouser, you are the ones that are really causing the problems because the problems that we're facing in society are big problems. Like how do you deal with something like COVID? How do you deal with something like distrust in social institutions? Like how do you deal with the fact that experts used to be able to be relied upon to give their testimony and to convince people of things. And now they can't, it's like, these are, these are real problems. And so I think, I think what I would say is that I am on team, no fear. And I'm on team of don't revel in fear and don't rise, uh, rile up people's fears just because it's convenient or it gets clicks or it gets views or something like this. I think your, your ending point there is absolutely fantastic. And it's, there's been a lot made of, uh, I don't want to stray too far here, but there's been a lot made of um, sort of the most protected by their parents' generation, which was millennials uh, and that kind of mindset of, uh, you know, everything's got to be okay. You've got to be safe, things like safe spaces. Uh, but there is a kind of deranged psychology at the bottom of a lot of this. And I think the question on top of what you described so well as the fear of death is, uh, when is this manufactured? And when is this the unintended consequence of something like a, uh, a technocracy? Not that we are one necessarily, but uh, a generation infused with technology. Um, you know, some of this is manufactured narrative. Uh, some of it comes from our technology. Some of it comes from uh, demographic changes, uh, the, the loss of religion in the entire younger population, declining birth rates would be another one. Um, there could be a whole host of things behind the different things driving the fear of death. And maybe the fear of death is uh, narrow to uh, one aspect of it, but anxiety about the future might be another way of looking at it as well. Um, so I guess I, I, I want to know sort of the way you think about given that the, the correct response now is perhaps to say we have a new technology, a new set of data, uh, a new global economy, um, and a new very scientific way left or right. There's very very fringe religious groups on the right still denying things like evolution, you know, we're, an in, we're a society infused with science, sort of losing meaning. We're in an entirely new space. I think the, the quote unquote fearless ones or the people, sorry, the people attempting to live without fear to consider their own opinions on whatever social issue it might be are realizing that the, the old way whether it's the way we did media or the way we did culture, or the way we did certain things isn't going to work anymore. Um, how, how would you see, I don't know, I guess the, the case for the future or the case for escaping the rigid paradigms of the present uh, in terms of those kind of psychological irrationalities? One of the, well, so what strikes me about what you just mentioned was sort of like the the generalization of the fear of death is sort of like a fear of the future. I think that there's something like really, really right there. And I think that the question of 
like the overall changes of society at large and its composition, religious belief is, is, is one of, uh, is a contributing factor here, you know, and, and I'm no expert on, on, on these matters whatsoever, but like, I've got to believe that, you know, at one point when at least we had a society that was cogently bound with something like a common religion, um, and particularly a religion where what awaited you after death was judgment and the potential hellfire of damnation forever. Um, my intuition is that that fear is probably like something of, the, the question is, do you let that fear paralyze you or not, right? Because it's when, when the thing that you are fearing is hellfire after death, the question that immediately gets posed is, well, what am I gonna do about this right now? And the kinds of fear that are, are pervasive in society today, it's not like you can actually do anything about it. You know, it's like, I actually can't do anything about Dr. Fauci or the CDC and, you know, the, you know, the NIH sponsoring gain of function research to, you know, make viruses like COVID. I can't do anything really about that. Like, sure, I can retweet something on Twitter and, you know, maybe like a post or something and like see, cause one other human being to, to get it. But like in reality, like I'm powerless to stop any of these things or, or on the, on the other side, like if the elections really were rigged, I don't think they were, if they were, like, am I powerless to do anything about that? Like, of course I am. Like, I can't do anything to stop that. And like, you can, you know, fake storm the Capitol all you want. And like, it's not going to change the outcome. And I think this is what's very different about the fears that are so pervasive in society today is that we are actually, we, we are not capable of determining our own destiny with regards to those fears. Whereas the fears, I think in an older society, like a Christian society, where the thing that you ultimately fear is damnation, there's something really tangible that you can do right now to alleviate that fear, right? You go confess your sins, you go live the good life, you know, you enjoy your time with your family when you can, and, you know, come what may, it's like you're doing your best um, to, to deal with that fear in a reasonable way. And I think that that is the big shift. Um, that has happened. Like now that these fears are in some sense more immediate, like they're, it's not like, like what happens to you after you're dead is not immediate. Like you have to die to get there. Whereas like I can turn on the news today and see like what the White House's policy on X is or Y, you know, or I can look up on Google what, um, you know, what the crazy right winger guy over there is saying or thinking about or what insurrection is happening in this country over in Europe, you know, like any of these things. And because they're so immediate and yet there's nothing you can do about them. I think it's the powerlessness that people have with respect to these things that that causes the buildup of and, and the breakdown of, of like the stability of, of those people with respect to the fear, right? Because if you can do something about it, well, then it's tangible. If you can't do anything about it, like, well, what are you supposed to do? Well, what you're supposed to do is uh, comply. It's <laughs> simple facts about that. No, I find that absolutely fascinating, um, exactly in that sense. And the most purchased author, I don't know if it was in 
2019, but maybe still this year, and I wonder how it ranks in decades in terms of author, was Jordan Peterson. Uh, and his message was clean your room, get your house in order, get your job in order, get your life in order. And I'm not going to tell you the specifics of that. That's on you. And the opposite message, I think, is uh, not to be too partisan about it, but uh, wear a mask, be an ally, uh, get vaccinated and get boosted. Uh, you know, family events, don't do that. That's not allowed. Uh, when you're talking to someone of another culture, you know, don't use their slang. Don't don't use any of their jokes. That's appropriation, and really none of the costumes. And if you speak too highly of the food, that's suspicious. That shows you're guilty of something. Um, and also, you know, if your if your melanation of a, is of a certain kind in the United States, you might be responsible for slavery. Um, shut up and listen. You know, would be the the other side of that. And I think all of our heroes at least my heroes in the in the recent years have been people who didn't tell me what or how to, or what to do how to live my life what to think or how to feel um they just gave me the opportunity to do that for myself and suggested a constraint uh on that and what i wanted to really point out at this point that you i think you got onto beautifully is this whole problem and I, I wanted to start it with fear, but I'm so glad we got here, is I feel like what's really breaking down is the metaphysical, uh, the shared metaphysical vision that one has in society. And you, you uh, constrained it to Christianity, and uh, I'm happy with that in a lot of ways, but I just want to try to make it even more archetypal than that, is there's a deeply lacking sense of one there's a meaning and purpose you can have uh in the universe and that's atheist non-atheist blah, blah blah there's there's something uh true honest and beautiful that you can do in the world um and then and then that sense being shared by a community or by a society etc um that's what's held things together and i think all of these things that we've talked about whether it's covid or woke politics or Donald Trump, et cetera, are a symptom of a metaphysical decay. And it's sort of the, the deep glue that holds heroes and villains into a story. And if there are no heroes and villains, we kind of all feel lost. And not in an absolute sense, not in an unwise sense, but there's so much ungroundedness because even amongst our best friends, we don't share a sense that uh, if you do such and such with your life, that would make you heroic or beautiful or wonderful. And I, I feel like that's sort of something I want to pose now is I feel like maybe what this conversation was supposed to be about is the Nietzschean sense that uh, the 21st century disposed of uh, a god and it disposed of some kind of transcendental ideal and it replaced it with uh, fear, division, and alienation. I think what we actually, what we have is just nothing to fill the void. And so it's like the fear and the alienation and the partisanship and the bickering will do 
because at least those things allow us to draw some lines in the sand. You know, like this is the thing about humans that's so weird is that like we are, as Jordan Peterson talks about, like we're aiming creatures, like we point in directions and like our eyes are what point us in directions. And like we really, the reason why we have whites in our eyes is so that we can see even across the room what the other humans are looking at right? Because it really matters, like, where, what, what is the orientation of those people? Like, are they oriented towards things that I'm oriented to or something else? Do I need to change my orientation? Are they oriented to me because they're attacking me? Or are they oriented to me because they're praising me? Like, there's all of these things that you learn amazingly just by looking at, like, where people's eyes are pointed. And I think your point, though, about this, uh, you know, deeply is correct, is that we have truly on the metaphysical level which is supposed to be the glue of the society basically nothing in common anymore and you know nietzsche predicted this back in the 1880s is just this oscillation between nihilism and totalitarianism is what's going to be the outcome of the death of god in the west and i think we do really see this i think that um current woke politics is the instantiation of totalitarianism the current form of totalitarianism and they're sort of like um it's maybe it's harder to see because it's still on the fringe and it's sort of coming out but like right-wing nihilism is like actually a thing like the response to the left-wing totalitarianism of wokeness is kind of like a belief in nothing um or a nihilism a kind of um um uh, a really I'm struggling to come up with the right words, like, but an unholy, like nothing is sacred, like, like joke, joking about the things that the, that the left finds like religiously, like motivating. Right. And so like, you can start to see the emergence. And I think sometimes you, by the way, Max, like kind of embody like this right-wing nihilism, by the way. Um, But it's like still kind of emergent and like still coming into, uh, into, but it makes total sense because I mean, like the reason, I mean, it's not like Nietzsche was just necessarily like seeing the future. It's just like this is what happens when totalitarian, uh, when when a totalitarian regime arises. It's like the those who are willing to dispose with what is sacrosanct will will emerge, and of course, like they're going to have to be nihilistic because, or they're and, and I'm not calling you a nihilist, Max, but I am saying that like you have like a. Uh, a, a willingness to make light of some of the things uh, that happen in the woke world that maybe in like, maybe I don't even feel comfortable doing. Right. Um, and I, and I just, I noticed that as a trend and the reason why that th- this is interesting and like worth talking about at all is because the things that at least we had even a generation ago to bind us when the underlying things were gone we don't have anymore, right? And that is that sort of institutional trust. It's like when I turned on the news, I was given things and I got to decide what to feel about them. And when when I listened to my politicians speak, they were telling me, hey, this is what's happening. This is what we're doing about it. You might disagree with that, but you know, for the common good, this is what we're doing. And you know, at least you knew that when uh, it was election time. If you didn't like the the direction that you went in, you could cast your votes and get the other guy in office and, you know, have like the institutional trust that the election is going to, you know, to be fair and honest and transparent and the right people are going to be 
uh, you know, to win at the end. And this is why you would call this like if you don't, you, don't, you may not have your first principles in common anymore, even a generation ago, but at least the second principles were the same. You know, it's like our first principles are different, but our second principles are the same. And so we have the shared understanding of the culture through our institutions. And now that we're seeing like the, the foundations, like they're kind of like falling um, up, so to speak. It's like the foundations went away and now the first floor is gone and the second floor is gone. And by the time you get to the third or first, fourth floor, you're like, we're not standing on anything but air anyway. And so it all comes, you know, all comes kind of collapsing down. And that's what I'm sort of worried about that we're, um, that we're seeing. So those were kind of a, a bunch of, of jarbled thoughts that I wanted to throw back at you, um, based on what you, based on your, based on your ideas. Sure. I, um, I wanted to ask you earlier in the conversation and I still want to, I want to repose the question, um, in, in light of this conversation, which is my sense growing up. So I had uh, Catholic parents, very loving Catholic parents, um but they were in in some sense rebels from where they came from in terms of the traditionalism of their families um and i think my dad was distinctly a rebel against authority in general he was um definitely someone who used uh the <laughs> the terrible drug marijuana uh long before it was legal and uh, reliably over time. And I think his distrust of systems came from what he gained from that drug, given what could happen to him criminally. I think that was a big part of it. Um, and I think there was, there was other, you know, much more interesting reasons as well. Um, but I think that one's very prevalent now to understand. And so uh, I grew up in a house that was very open to rebellion in certain ways while still being uh, religious. And the rebellion we were, at least the, the, the rebellion at the time, especially culturally to me seemed against the right. And that was, we can't curse on TV, um, you know, any, any tits on TV, that's unacceptable. Uh, you can't say fuck on the radio um, and other kinds of purity tests that were on the right, you know. You know, this man uh, had infidelity in his past, uh, cannot be a congressman. We're done <laughs> with the case. Uh, and so the, the rebellion I grew up against was in some sense against the right, but it was in a tradition, not a traditional, but a, a Catholic and conservative framework at the same time. And so I've seen the parties, in my opinion, this is what I wanted to ask you about. Sorry for being so long-winded. I've seen the parties flip. So when we grew up in the 90s, I see the right wing as being the cultural totalitarian influence. Um, you know, like Clinton's blowjob was the worst thing that ever happened in the work. You know, the president, it disgraced the office. Um, and we flipped to, uh, you know, a, a man is a man and a woman is a woman. You're, you're done. You're done. Uh, not only is that transphobic, but you're promoting violence against trans people. And those are opposite sides of the spectrum. So I guess my question to you is, do you have the same sense? And I think uh, depending on your response, we can talk about that nihilism and that metaphysical meaning. But I think the point of that story in summary is I have my whole life danced on either side 
of the totalitarian rebellion perspective. And when I was younger, I was rebelling against the right. And now that I'm older, I'm rebelling, rebelling against the left. But that doesn't, um, that doesn't exactly define something absolutely. I think you're definitely, I think what you have pointed out, which is that the, there's been an oscillation between the left and the right in our, in our lifetime, just in the years that we have been alive, we have witnessed that take place. And it's been, it's just been interesting. It's like, dude, the, the conversation on, in the conservative, you know, wings of America is just not the same conversation that it was like, even back, you know, in the Tea Party revolution in 2010, that was 11, 12 years ago now, right? Um, I remember conservatism used to be about things like a balanced budget, you know, maybe term limits for Congress and, you know, some of all of the, you know, kind of um, religious evangelical right-wing stuff that you're talking about. Um, yeah, like that was the Republican party of our youth. And I don't think that it was just Donald Trump who came and blew it up. Um, I think that in some sense, maybe those were just talking points for a long time. And like they had lost any connection to real fervor, at least it, maybe on behalf of like the Congress people and like the actual representatives of the party platforms. And then Trump comes along, blows it up. And we realize that people don't care about that shit anyway, you know? And so that's what had, had moved on. So whether or not it's happening as a result of the platforms shifting or the attitudes have always sort of been what they are. And now there's just like a realignment of the parties to um, the thoughts is, 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 I think, you know, probably the case. Yeah. And I, I think it's, it's really just a question of where the sloppiness lies yeah, to a certain extent too. So I, I don't think you like the, uh, evangelical, I, and I think it was much more prominent as well, but the, yeah, the evangelical conservative movement, uh, or at least the voice of that when we grew up. Uh, equally, I don't think you like woke politics, but this gets at the heart of what you described as perhaps my right-wing nihilism, which isn't right-wing nihilism, it's just easier to laugh. Um, and sometimes laughter is just allowing yourself not to care about what's so devastatingly bullshit in the world. <laughs> and I guess that's sometimes my own therapy. But this is um, where I think we could take the conversation. And that is Nietzsche described in the gay science and I think in other places, the philosophers of the future. And I think the point of that anecdote to a large extent is uh, the Christianity of the evangelicals in the 90s and maybe even now won't do. Perhaps the Catholicism uh, in the 90s won't do. Uh, and then at the same time, the uh, college professors and their attempt to save the planet uh, by eating plants and driving Priuses is not going to do. And merely our, our, our feast on entertainment is not going to do. And our hobbies aren't going to do. And the question is where, I think the solution is the question about what is the future state? Can you reinvent Christianity? Um, can you make a, a new secular religion, which kind of the new atheists imagined, but they didn't, they didn't imagine it in any 
uh, rigorous sense, but it was shown, you know, to be wanting in a lot of ways. Because um, wokeness, in my opinion, is the religious answer to the repudiation of Christianity in the United States um, and the Christianity that existed in the 1990s. So I think the question is, the, the real the real thing we talked about uh, underlying fears and we talked about all the the weird dislocations I think it's it's exactly that we don't have a um, a system of thought we don't have a system of value that is equipped for the information density for the technology um, and for the pleasures and leisure of the 21st century Yeah. Okay. So this is, this is it, right? Like this is the, in some sense, I think the deep question that, that connects all of the things that we were talking about, really. like even going back to, you know, kind of the, the beginning conversation we were having about Brexit, Trump, um, disinformation, people getting banned from Twitter. Like the thing that you're totally right to point out is that we don't have a system for putting all of the things that we value in a hierarchy and then determining what we should do uh, about them. And that is what, that is the function that a religion serves in, in a society. Like, I think that there is a, an unwillingness to have a very serious conversation about the utility of established churches, namely like governments having established churches um, but one of the things that's really useful about them from a governance perspective is that the definition of what's off limits is, you know, purported to be given from on high, right? It's like, we don't get to mess with it. It's like, these are the things that are not allowed. And so it's like, I don't care how much you want to do them. We can't do them. And that sort of common grounding that you get from a religion, whether it's for, through an established church that you had in, say, like England, or here in the United States where we didn't have established churches, but we had such a high like Sunday church attendance um, by people that you sort of got the, um, you sort of got the perks uh, of an established church without having the, the, the without having one. Um, I do think that it's ultimately, there's an inability to, for us to determine what, what is a value and what we should chase. And that is why we have this sort of incredibly frenetic and, you know, kind of like ADD, like jumping from topic to topic to topic. Like what did, what is to care about? Like, oh, Fauci said this and oh my gosh, Rand Paul said that. And, oh, you know, here's, uh, you know, the uh, White House press secretary says this and the president says that. And like, we're, we're just like, we are totally frenetic. Like we are totally just bouncing off the walls with, with what we're paying attention to because we don't have any way of actually like, we don't have any filters um, that are allowing us to, to, you know, to essentially filter out the noise so that we only hear signal. That, that's one of the things that I think that, that religion plays in society. Um, and to the point about like wokeness being a religion, I think that that's just totally true. And the reason why you know that is when whenever you start having people, you know, defrocked based on things that they believe, like thought crimes, like that is what you that is what happens in 
the realm of fundamentalist religion, right? It's like, are you with us or are you against us? And what's really ironic about this from, a, from the Christian perspective is that the founder of Christianity is famous for saying, though he who is, who is not against you is for you, right? Which was a really interesting, um, really interesting thing for Christ to say about somebody who was baptizing in his name, but was not following uh, him and the rest of his disciples. This sort of inversion of, oh, no, 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 it's not, if it's not, if he's, if he's not with me, he's against me. It's, if he's not against me, he is with me. Um, and I think it's our inability to, to make that sort of like mental shift, because it's not easy, you know, especially when you can't actually trust like the innate goodness of people that are doing the things that they're doing. Um, and so, you know, just to make it like really concrete, it's like, you know, your, your direct quote of Dr. Fauci um, from earlier is like case in point. It's like, what is it? If you speak against uh, me, you speak against the science. What is yeah. the quote? It, I mean, it, it's exactly along those lines. Um, um, people who are disagreeing with me are really disagreeing with the science. And I think it gets slightly more absolute than that. But essentially, the the tautology is supposed to be what Dr. Fauci says equals science and what science yeah. says equals Dr. Fauci. Yeah, precisely, precisely. And it's like precisely you don't get things like that when when you have a secondary system of value that's able to judge things. And I think that that's precisely why Nietzsche noted that in the in the absence of of hierarchies of value, you just get totalitarianism because there is, if there's truly no way of determining what's of value and what's not of value, the only way to do it is to cram one down. And whoever just has the power that day is going to be the one cramming it down. So it's like, you know, Dr. Fauci is in a position of power to cram something down as a result of a global event like the COVID-19 pandemic. And so, you know, naturally you get this sort of like forceful, dogmatic, religious, even, you know, like I am your holy father, the Reverend Dr. Fauci, you know, kind of promulgating these, um, these, you know, pronouncements ex cathedra, you know, to try and wrap this in as much religious language as possible, because precisely we're not capable of judging statements or things on their face value anymore. And, and I don't know, and the, the thing that I'm struggling with in this conversation is the anymore of it all. It's like, is this actually a new problem? Like, how, when did this problem arrive on the scene? And like, how did we get here is like, what's really kind of concerning to me. It's like, maybe it's just that when you're young, you don't perceive the problems like this, but it really does feel like we're in a unique situation where there's discontent and division at a level that perhaps we haven't seen since the 60s, right? And all of the Vietnam stuff. And it's like, well, eventually we did get over that and had something of a peaceable society, I think. Um, but the question is how many breakdowns do you get before the society is no longer repairable? Um, yeah, and that's, and, that's, and that's what I think what I'm worried about. Like, I just don't know. I mean, I believe that the path forward is probably something like this, you know, where people with, with differing points of view are actually willing to have a conversation about 
things that matter and not trying to cram down dogmatic points of view about what you should think or how you should feel about certain things. But I also don't know like how that scales. You know, it's like part of the problem is that what scales is emotional response. And this is why Twitter, by the way, has become like one of the dominant means of communication in the country. It's like, there's no room for nuance in 240 characters. And like, nobody wants nuance anyway, because like, it's way more fun to like, get like the zinger in than, than to have a nuanced thought about something. And so in some sense, like I want to remain very positive because I think there's a lot to be hopeful about. I'm a very optimistic person in general, but I'm also like just gen generally like, gosh, I don't know what is the, like what saves us? Like, I don't know what the bomb is. I don't know what the religion that could come, like, like you asked for, like, is there a, is there a way that like a Christianity could be reformed or a secular religion could emerge that could actually form the sort of universal basis for, for a cogent society at scale. And it's like, I, I, I just don't know if there is. And so I think what hap what has to happen is that we've got to very quickly reestablish those layer two things like institutional trust or, you know, whatever it is that, okay, so we may not agree on the most fundamental things, but at least like we, we agree on enough so that when we go to the ballot box, that the guy who won is the guy who won. Yeah, I completely agree. And you, you've made me think of too many things. Um, you've done such a fantastic job. Um, I, you were the, the one who came up with the phrase for me, which was a Catholic atheist. And it was something I always admired about uh, the Jews or certain Jews was they could uh, not believe in the supernatural, but follow rituals. So that would kind of be my baseline choice. Like, uh, I would love to be married by a priest who knows that I probably think the universe is something like a deism, if designed by a god at all, something like that. Uh, but I, what you, sorry, outside of that, uh, what you said struck me so much of it's on nature and walking, Emerson and Thoreau. And I don't know if that was originally one book, but when we were given it, it was one. Um, and I think it's Thoreau who starts nature with a passage, a very arresting passage on like basically how the the things that fill our society are relics and sepulchers of a past that's from a bygone age and he asks in the this is the first paragraph uh of the essay he asks uh why don't we have a god and a principle and a set of values worthy of our own age ones that we can truly believe in uh why don't we have an art that reaches beyond any art before us that kind of thing and i think that's the real calling here and i i don't want to say we need to reinvent religion or reinvent society in some way uh, that would terrify me to propose anything like that but i think in a very real sense we're all authors in this and it goes down to the micro ways we live life and do habits whether it's the ways that we create norms for technology use um, the ways we create families in the 21st century, um, things like that. And I think, I think we need to look at it as 
to go all the way back to the beginning, me staring at a blank acrylic canvas earlier this week going, I don't know how to paint. I think that's very much where society is. Um, and we need to start painting. And it's not this, we need to fix, we need to fix, we need to get back to, uh, we have to return to, you know, go back to normalcy, go back to this. I think it's, no, we need to reinvent. Uh, we're not, we don't, we don't even, having stared at cell phones for a decade, we don't even have brains like our ancestors anymore. Like we've seen too much. We've known too much. I mean, the Hubble Space Telescope and our understanding of genetics and um, just the sheer power of our computation is far, far, far beyond any population in history. Why are we imagining that we aren't the ones who are meant to be the authors of how this should work and that it's broken. Or why are we imagining that it's just something that's broken that needs to be fixed when we should be imagining, like we are the true author, like this is our responsibility. We need to stop freaking out and trying to fix things. We need to start inventing. Uh, we need to start making things of our age that work for our age. You know, I couldn't agree with this sentiment more. Like this is, this is, I think the antidote, this is the remedy to all of the problems. It's just, it's, it's not very satisfying in some sense, because you would, someone from the outside would argue, well, you're just ignoring the problem. And it's like, no, it's like really what I'm advocating for is that there's this thing called human nature and human nature is actually very concerned with individuals, individual humans and very small groups of humans, like namely families. And like, if you get everything kind of right on that level, then it percolates up the system into a broader society that's healthy. And the issue is that, you know, it's just not measurable in the same way of, oh, we spent X billion dollars on a program that had outcome, you know, economic value outcome of why which was greater than the investments so it was a good program but you know something more like you know you should really invest in yourself and you know you should really take time every day when you get home of work home from work to like really greet your wife and like you know say hi to her and ask how her day was and tell her how your day was and then check in with your kids and you know make sure you you know go see grandma and grandpa frequently and, you know, don't forget about, you know, your aunts and uncles, uh, you know, all that kind of stuff, that sort of care of, of the individual human beings and the family life, it percolates upwards. That's the theory anyway. And like, that's how you solve like the societal problems. And I think that, you know, you and I have sort of been batting around for a long time. Like, what do you actually do about all this stuff? You know, it's like, I'm very uncomfortable by the present situation. I really don't like the fact that Twitter is the me the primary means of global communication, Twitter and Facebook and, you know, iMessage, frankly, like I'm not happy that those are the places, the fora of discussion. Um, so like that makes me uncomfortable. Then the second thing that makes me uncomfortable is that the operators of those channels are taking it upon themselves to police what kinds of things are allowed to be communicated within them. It's like, okay, that makes me really uncomfortable too. And then, you know, it gets all the way down to, you know, my own friends in my group chats and we're arguing about things that none of us have control over anyway. And frankly, like, haven't really thought deeply enough about the issues to have an intelligent conversation about 
anyway. And yet we get so entrenched in these points of view that we have, and we'll really dig in our heels to, to argue these things. It's like, I'm uncomfortable that that is what I want to do. I'm uncomfortable that my friends and I are, are fighting about stuff that we don't have control over. And I'm uncomfortable that like, yeah, about, about all this stuff. And so like the question is, what if the discomfort is a call to sort of opt out in a, not, not in a kind of Amish or a Mennonite way, but what if it's an, what if the opt out is to just care less you know, it's like, I don't really care what Dr. Fauci has to say about how my holiday gathering with my family should go. Like, we have some traditions that we're going to uphold. You know, like, this is how we celebrate Christmas in my family. Or, you know, maybe the, maybe the answer is to quite simply say, you know, I have opinions about COVID. I have opinions about, you know, woke politics and we could get into an argument about this in our, in our group chat, or, you know, maybe like we should just talk about sports. It's more fun, you know, like we're going to vehemently disagree with each other as much there. So like, let's disagree about stuff like that. That doesn't matter at all, you know, and that we're not going to take personally at the end. And I think that this is, you know, this is what's so striking or, you know, maybe to try and tie this back a little bit to some of the broader you know, social or societal issues that we started with. People are really afraid right now. And they're afraid because there's a lot of unknowns. And there's a lot of unknowns at a global scale. There's a lot of unknowns at, at a societal level. And I think that the remedies that are offered, you know, by traditional religion really aren't much about the religion. It's about the way of life that the religions offer. You know, like you bring up the Jews and it's like the Judaism is a familial relationship. If you go back and read the books of Moses, the book of Genesis, Exodus, like that's a family story. The family of this guy named Abraham, you know, and the family of this guy named Jacob. And like they have some family stuff and like that's what unites all Jews. Like we're the descendants of these guys. Um, and they have like kind of an unabashed willingness to just embrace like, well, the just, just about family, you know, and community and stuff. And it's like, in some sense, it doesn't really matter what's happening. And because we're here to, to spend the time with our families. And, and I think that if you, if you can form yourself, like form your expectations about what life is and, and maybe convince yourself that that is all that matters then you can have a very satisfying life despite all the tumult. Because and I think again, the Jews are the great example of this, by the way. Like, talk about a people that has been put through the ringer, you know? Um, and yet they're still around and like they're holding on tight. And in some sense, they've got their, you know, their nose to the grindstone, you know. It's like while the rest of us are losing our heads, they're the ones keeping it cool. And that, by the way, is kind of the hallmark of the Jewish people. They've been able to do it at every stage of history and kind of save the West in some in some non-trivial way through their sort of hunkering down into the things that really matter or the thing that really matters. And that's kind of family. I don't know. How does any of that strike you? No, I think you're, I think you're spot on. And um, I love that response because I share so much with the with that emotion, uh, especially especially across the last two years of my life. Um, I 
I went from a situation where I was very in the abstract in college, let's say, and thought I knew um, what was wrong with the world, how it worked, wanted to, wanted to figure out where meaning and purpose was. And things didn't start working out until I got back to the basics, um, until the people around me, until the thing I was doing every day. And so this this whole grand scale thing can can cause a lot of us. I think this truly is the appeal of Jordan Peterson is to take us away from everything we've talked about, uh, riots and climate change and uh, mass immigration and COVID into our bedrooms and go, can you know, can, can you put the pile of papers away and, uh, you know, maybe that doesn't have to be lying on the floor. And what if there was a piece of art here? And those things are so fundamental. And I wanted to just go back and not revise, but add to the comments I made earlier, which is I don't think we can throw away any of this because all of this is human. And what I mean by that is I have friends uh, that are very, very close friends um, who are, you know, from Saudi Arabia, born in Palestine, now in med school in Poland, lived in the United States, um, and have become more capitalistic over time, but their desire is uh, a sort of utilitarianism that's like John Stuart Mill and other friends who are Orthodox Catholics who are very business-minded. And I, I know uh, an, another friend who's a, a vegan, uh, very meditative, and he's, a, he's getting his PhD in psychology. Um, th like that's my world. And there's, there's also painters and musicians and occupational therapists and nurses and uh, entrepreneurs and accountants and everything else. And uh, those people as well have different metaphysics, different versions of Christianity, non-belief, et cetera. And I don't want a world without any of them. And I think we're in, we're in a position, what you said, we're in a position of everything being either true or thrown away. And I think, I think what I've tried to learn to do and what's really made me love I guess the human experience a lot more in this time is loving all of it. I want all of that feedback, um, whether it's merely profession or it's personality. I want the rebellious person and the compliant person. I want, you know, the messy genius and the the very organized and to the point doctor in my head. I want them in my world. I want them in my head. I want them in my community. And I think maybe in a different sense from what you were saying, and this is the first time I'm articulating this, it's not a matter of merely returning to the family and the community and the parts of daily life, but it's removing the walls from anything that is outside of that. It's, oh, this thing's the other, this person's the other side of the aisle. It's a different religion. It's a different politics. It's a different country. Uh, it's a different set of interests, a different personality. Like if you can't both love the the sort of archetype of someone who's very shy and kind of cute and in their head and soft-spoken and someone who's like in a bombastic Italian bursts in the room, how's my people going today? 
if, if both of those aren't part of your world, I, I don't understand where you're coming from. And so um, I think we've drawn walls everywhere as if they mattered. And I, that gets to what you were saying, as if any of this mattered, you know, as if COVID mattered, if it blah, blah, blah. But we've also drawn walls between ways we can divide people. And um, I guess as open-ended an idea as you just posed to me, um, I think we can get to the metaphysics. I think we can design a future. Um, and it's not just mere pluralism like something I just described. I'm very happy you're as Catholic as you are, you know, and I want to see that flourish in the 21st century, uh, particularly for you. I think I, I love the way that you've um, continued to press Catholic thought into new avenues. Like that can't go away. And so let's say I hop on board of a secular religion not a religion, but a moral theory. You know, if that takes you out of the picture, that's what I think the mistake is. Um, and sorry for ending on such a personal note, but. There's just a great diversity of human beings and points of view. And like, this is, gosh, and this is, this is what's so cool is that like the reason why you're able to take that to such a personal place, Max, is precisely because like, these are the things that matter. It's like friends, family, like community, the people that you encounter and like the, the, the goodness that you get to share, the bread that you get to break with others. Like there's, these are the heights of the human experience. You know, we talked last time on, uh, on the podcast about Advent and, you know, sort of our conclusion there was that Christmas was a, is a, is a celebration of the things that matter eternally. And, you know, the biggest thing that the biggest thing to celebrate eternally is the family. And like we pointed out that like in a very tangible way, like from an evolutionary perspective, it's like, ah, yeah, like family is all that matters. You know why? Because that's where new humans come from, you know? And it's like, there's literally ingrained in our need and ability to survive is this thing called family. And it's, it's messed up. And it's, you know, really dark at times. I mean, like read the stories of the very first family, Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel, not very good, you know, not, not good highlights, you know, from the beginning, but yet that is where hum humanity emerges from this sort of context of family. And then friendship, the role that friendship plays as not only people to like, there's like sort of like an intellectual friendship where, you know, you can bat around the big ideas and like whatever, but there's also sort of like, just like a lower level sort of moral friendship where, you know, we're getting together to have a good time and celebrate the fact that life is worth living because if life weren't, weren't worth living, we would be at home, you know, locked in our rooms and just suck, you know, plugging our minds into pleasure machines right? Like we wouldn't be back, you know, we wouldn't come out uh, and, and spend time with one another. And yet we do. And so I think this is the point to like be optimistic about. And, and to your point about the sort of pluralism that is sort of implicit in this, I actually find that to be incredibly refreshing. I, I think that there, I, you know, I, I, I score very interestingly my personality test versus my political alignment because I have the temperament of a very progressive person. And yet I find myself in a very conservative place with conservative points of view, conservative alignments. And yet I think like 
very, I think very progressively. And so as a result, like what I'm looking to always do is to see how the things that I find to be forever and eternally relevant, if they truly are forever and eternally relevant, they should resonate with everything else that I discover in life to be forever and eternally relevant. Right. And like, there's something about the encounter with someone who comes from a totally different background, with totally different points of view, being able to share a glass of wine with that person and talk about life is like, it's in some sense, like one of the greatest experiences that, you know, you can have, like one of, one of the great experiences of my life was, you know, a dinner that I had in Germany with a client of mine talking about life and like, just lit. It was just an experience of living, you know, and that's where the richness and the spice in life is. And like, when I consider like moments like that dinner in Germany, when I consider things like my wedding, when I consider things like hanging out with you in college, smoking cigarettes on the back porch or in the bathtub, like, it's like, those are the moments that make me like wonder why have I stressed over anything that Fauci has said? Why have I stressed over anything that Trump did? And why do I give a shit about any of it? Because it really truly is not what is eternally salient. Um, and this is what I think is just, I'm so, I'm so intrigued that we ended back in this place because it's where we ended up in our Advent conversation where it's like we had sort of we sort of were like batting around in the dark, like through the weeds and like what we, what weeds we were looking through earlier, I'm still not quite sure. Right. But yet what I'm, you know, what I'm finding morally in this conversation is that there are just things that matter and there are things that don't matter. And if you can personally batten down the hatches on the things that matter and the people around you do the same, like maybe the societal problems just work themselves out with time. And, you know, maybe that proves to be too difficult or too abstract of a solution statement to a problem like COVID or a problem like institutional distrust. But like, if you think about it, like the family itself and friendship itself are institutions. And if you can have faith in friendship and you can have faith in family, like maybe at some point that translates up the, up the ladder to faith in democracy and faith in, you know, the, the bureaucracies that, you know, that we've appointed to govern us. I don't, I don't know that, but, but maybe it's just the case. And like, maybe this was the thing that the, that the, the conservative religious nineties Republicans were trying to point out and they just didn't have the right words to describe it. And instead, like they put off people like you and me with their moralizing and finger wagging, but like, maybe this is what they were saying. And man, it's like, that's the kind of that's the kind of conservative that I'm interested in being, you know, it's like, I want a, a, a zeal and a love of life itself to like pepper my reality and my family. And I want that to be the foundation and the unit with which we build society because it's just, I know it to be so satisfying. And I know that like true joy is found there. I don't find true joy fighting with my friends in my group chat about COVID like it actually makes my life worse. I'm entirely, entirely on the same page. And um, 
I don't know, not to extend that idea or be too preachy, but I think it's the the things we can do in in context. And I think I don't know if we want to make this the last point or go on to another one after this, but uh, a a a claim that's kind of stood out to me in recent years is. Um, is around this notion of maturity and being a real adult. And it's kind of like, you know, somebody says something on TV or on social media, whether it's a famous person or a pundit, and there's this immediate reaction, like, you know, this is disgraceful, this is disgusting, blah, blah, blah. And I'm kind of reminded of the British way of putting this, which, oh, grow the fuck up, buddy. You know? Um, But I think that's, that's part of what we've been talking about in terms of psychology, um, which is this ability to shrug things off and not let them affect you. Can you like can you learn a fact about the government or the state of politics without without letting it emotionally influence your day or your worldview? Like, oh, this is so prescient. Uh, and at the bar tonight with the, with the guys or with the friends, uh, if someone brings up a like a, an opposite opinion, am I going to be hurt or feel like our friendship is hurt because they we somehow saw this issue differently? And I think maybe the true return to conservatism, or maybe like the best conservative idea right now that hasn't been stated well enough, is we need adults in the room when we talk about things. And it, uh, adults don't shame their friends for taking a different stance on an issue. Um, and adults don't freak out every time there's a news story about an issue they care about, um, things like that. And I think it, it's the emotional capture that's, that's so relevant. So with everything you're saying about life, but like you don't have to be affected by the, by the wh- whichever way the tides are going this morning. And that's the definition of growing up and accepting the way the world is. Um, so yeah, uh, I don't know how that how that leaves you, but um, I think we're missing a, a lot of maturity. We want to win like kids want to win. We want to react and uh, throw tantrums like kids want to do. Um, we want to be right, and we want to be certain and a deep deal of maturity, I think, is on hand in that sense. And that's what I think brings us together. The deeper things, which are actually the more familiar things. The deeper things are difficult, though, right? Because they're the things that you can only sort of have mystical experience of, not certain knowledge of. You know, and I think that this is primarily, and maybe this is one of the causes, right? Like as we've gone into a society that's more scientific and more focused on facts and like really trying to be able to lay things out, like you just want to be able to point to the certainties. And I think what the proposal that we're working towards is that life is predicated on things that just don't, can't really be articulated in that language. And so you get very confused um, you know, by, by, by it. And, you know, like precisely, I think that one of the things, I I don't know why this had, this image popped into my head, but, you know, St. Thomas Aquinas is the great systematizer of medieval theology, right? Um, he, 
um, essentially takes the philosophy of, of Aristotle and brings it into a Christian context and then creates a systematic sweeping uh, work called the Summa Theologica, which is essentially an attempt at understanding the whole of theology and philosophy, right? It's, it's a very ambitious project. Um, and yet at the end of his life, after all of this work, all of this effort in producing one of the great, you know, magnum opuses of the philosophical tradition, he has a mystical experience, probably possibly associated with a head injury. And he says, this is all straw. It's all straw. You know, and he wasn't devaluing it. He was merely saying that it's it's just straw, right? It's like, it's not of no value, but it's of, it pales in comparison to the eternal and the deep. And I think that this is precisely the problem that we're having as a society today. Like we're having the moment of the head injury and the, this is all straw. And we're like, holy shit, we spent so much time on all that stuff. And it, it we worked so hard at it how could it be that it's all straw? And I think that that's like sort of like maybe the cultural moment that we're drilling into is like this transition from like certain systematic knowledge to more of like an inarticulable mystical understanding of the things that matter most and trying to pivot from one way of knowing to another way of being is just very difficult, right? Like for St. Thomas, it required a trauma for him to be able to, to, make, that, to make that mental shift and perhaps that's what we're experiencing as a culture today as well. You know, like this, this, tra this traumatic shift in, in this, in this way of thinking. And I think that that's why, by the way, that, you know, there's in some sense, like a very like strange critique of mystical understanding that happens in society. And like, it comes off in a very interesting way. Like, it's like, unless you can cite a source for an attitude or point of view, like it's not to be taken seriously. And it's like this whole notion that I could be the generation of an insight is almost not taken seriously. It's like, well, what do you know, Doyle? Like, you're just a guy, like, you know, how can you have, like, if you're going to think that way, like there has to be facts that back you up. And it's like, well, maybe not, like maybe, this more attitude or dispositional form of knowledge or form of knowing is just this is just sufficient to a cogent society. And what we're witnessing is just that rupture um, from one to the other, kind of in some sense, the end of the enlightenment upon us at last, like the end of this sort of scientific nature or understanding of the world. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad we got a chance to move on to epistemology a bit. Um, I do want to say the, sorry to share an anecdote. Um, I had uh, a great roommate for four years and great friend. He's the one in Poland now. Um, but in college, he was the one who really solidified this notion of the unity of knowledge, which was an idea in science that eventually all knowledge would cohere. So it means if you believe something in terms of particle physics, what you believe about economics is true of that. And there was a scale of how this works. So you can be most certain about something in physics and you can be less certain about claims in chemistry. And then you move to biology. So now we're talking about hundreds of thousands, if not billions of units of chemistry 
in orchestration. You move from that to something like um, anatomy and physiology, which is the way bodies work. And you move from that to communities and societies. You move from that to economics. And at every point you're supposed to recognize that we're becoming less and less certain. Uh, the, the strange, strange version of truth in the modern era is that we're very scientific and yet we talk about things like, uh, you know, what meditation does for happiness, both of which, what do those mean? Again, what's going on in the brain? What are those going on in politics? Blah, blah, blah. And we'll talk about things above that, like taxation or economic policy. Like anyone that has any idea what's going on at that scale. Um, the, the human body's at the point of trillions of particles. We can only be exact in physics. So I feel like we've turned science into something that it's not. Science is truly skepticism at every level. And it is supposed to go here up, but we're supposed to get less and less certain the more complexity there is in the scale. And I think this weird way of talking about truth is, you know, science knows that vaccines are the right thing for the population. I'm like, you can't do that. No, 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 we know that a photon uh, ejected from the sun at this rate, interacting with these atmospheric particles, <laughs> creates this effect in these conditions. That's what we know. If you want to scale that up to, uh, you know, a billion population and all of their differing genetics and all of their differing exposure to sunlight, and physical activity and nutrition, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and the complexity there. We don't know shit anymore. We haven't cured cancer. Um, so I, I, the, the real scientific worldview allows for the mysticism you were just talking about. And the weird way that certain scientists are talking about science right now is as if it's settled. Like when you get up to human health, we, we've come so far, but we have no idea how mechanisms in the body work and to this day. And, and to that point, we have no idea how viral particles evolve, which is the thing we're facing. So, so we've started to, to misimagine what science is. And so I would say it's not the death of the en enlightenment um, in, in the sense that you mentioned, but it's because we forgot what the enlightenment was in terms of what the scientific project is. And the scientific project is a project of ignorance. And thus it has like a fundamental humility that's just embedded at the bottom, like a fundamental, we do not know. You know, it, one of the things that I love about, about what you just talked about is like the sort of scales of uncertainty in science that scale with the size of your systems. And one of the things that's just so delightful is that if you even go beneath physics and you, you go into the world of math, you have to confront a very, very disconcerting truth about mathematical systems. And there's, there's three properties that reasonable people would assume that most maths would have, right? And that's consistency, which is that I cannot prove X and not X, right? And I can't have any contradictions. You want systems to have consistency. You want there to be proofs for every true statement in a system, 
right? Like if X is a true statement, I must be able to write a proof for X based on some given assumptions and be able to reason my way there. And then uh, I'm, gosh, I'm struggling to remember what the third property is of its consistency, decidability, and uh, there's one other one that's kind of like really shocking. And like the, the great truth about mathematics is basically the only thing it has is consistency. Like to this day, like there are mathematical truths that we, that we believe are true, but we can't prove them it, with our math, which is really disconcerting to people when you start kind of thinking about what math is at a symbolic, like at a symbolic logic level. It's like, I'm telling you that there are statements that are true that you cannot that you cannot prove that they're true in math in what's supposed to be the most certain of all of these disciplines and like that's shocking and i think what's cool about that one one you know you know maybe brief example about this is that you can prove for example that um you can prove that proofs don't exist and you can prove that something cannot, you can prove that something cannot be true. And that doesn't imply always that it's false because there are claims that we can prove are not true or we can prove they are not, not true. And we can prove that they are not, not false. And so it's like, you get these really bizarre sorts of, what do you mean by any of this at, at the root and bottom? And I think that from a practical human level, what we have forgotten, and I think that the enlightenment is guilty of, of something. And it's, it's that the abstraction of knowledge into formal systems doesn't actually relate to life in a meaningful way. And that's why you get some bizarre like phenomena like this, where you don't have decidability and, but you do have consistency in mathematical systems. And it's like, by the way, and like the real, the real world application of this is that your computer can't know whether or not the bug that it's stuck with right now, causing your, you know, your beach ball to spin on your Mac. Like it doesn't know whether or not that program's ever going to end. So it can't kill it for you. That's why you have to force quit that program. Like that's called the hard problem. Like, like that's called the hard problem of the halting problem. You know, it's like, it's un, it's an unsolvable problem. You cannot know whether or not that program is ever going to halt. doesn't matter how strong your computer is, how, how fast it can think it's not solvable. It's an undecidable problem. And we want, especially in things that really, that, that, that approach like such relevancy and saliency, like, like are vaccines effective and like, should I take this medicine? And like, we want it to be a yes or no answer. And the simple fact of the matter is that when you're talking about higher level, like there's, there's, there's some, there's some basic yes or no answer questions, maybe down in physics, down in math, maybe you get lucky in some in chemistry, but like all the way up here on the levels of society, there are uncertainty bars around everything. And so it's like, are, is this vaccine safe? And it's like, that really depends on what, the, what, what you mean by safe. It's like, well, okay, let me change the question. Like, should I get the vaccine? It's like, well, you know, you're 65 or older, you know, you're past reproducing age, you've got grandkids, you know, maybe you have some heart trouble. Yeah, you should get the vaccine. It's like, oh no, but I'm 25 and like, you know, about to start having, you know, about to start having kids and like, I'm really healthy. Like I don't have any pre-existing conditions. It's like, those are two totally different situations. And maybe the answer is different. And I'm not 
preaching one way or the other, you know, but it's like the simple fact of the matter is that we don't get to have the same level of sort of dogmatic truth statements um, about things like this. And that's what makes people uncomfortable because we actually do in some sense want to be able to lean on like, well, did I make the right choice or not? And it's like, it depends on what you value and it sort of depends on what you measure too, you know? And like, that's another way of stating, by the way, like it depends on what you value um, because you don't measure the things that don't have value to you. Right. And so like at the end of the day, like, man, we have come now very far, like we are deep in epistemology territory. It's like, how do you know that the statements that are being made by these people are true. Like at the end of the day, like this is what's so strange about science is that it's, it's a system of ignorance. It's a system of, of, it's a system of knowledge that's designed to trick human intuition because sometimes human intuition is really bad, right? Sometimes like we have biases that build, like we build, just build our experiments wrong. And so like, we're going to, we're going to confirm something as true that is actually false. And so we had to develop this system where independent of any particular person, a truth could be arrived at that was replicable across people. And I think what's so weird is that what we're witnessing is science happening in real time. And so what's happening is like, well, a study came, an experiment was done. Like there's a conclusion and it had thousands, had a thousand subjects. And it's like, well, that's one data point essentially, right? Even like with the thousand subjects and like you just because the experiment was done once isn't enough. Like you need to re repeat it and repeat it and repeat it. And that's precisely what the enlightenment gave us was this system of in some sense, excluding consciousness from these problems of knowledge. And so that you could deceive your way into deceive yourself into truth, which is a really strange way of thinking about it. Um, and I think that ultimately this is a system of, of no, like this system of knowing is not compatible with really human life in, in a, uh, in, in like the more fundamental way that we were talking about earlier with like, you know, having, you know, like the, the bombastic, you know, love lover of life. And the, you know, like the people in your life, like the, in your family members and like, this isn't scientific knowledge is a different it's like you don't know people the same way you know a fact and that's something that i think that we've totally forgotten and we want knowledge of people to be knowledge of facts and i think this is precisely why friendships are breaking down like over political you know stupid political issues right because we want that i know my friends i just like i know this fact and i know them to that they ought to hold if they're my friends they ought to hold this fact too as a, as a belief. No, I think that's absolutely perfect. I think that's absolutely perfect. And I think the disposition I've accepted is, uh, I don't care about facts when it comes to my life. And what I mean by that is, uh, my life is a story. It's, it's not a set of discernible I mean, the, the, the fascinating thing about therapy is you'll hear people say like this, this one really traumatic moment happened in my life. And I don't mean actually trauma, but just like something you remember that was very hurtful, very powerful, very something. And then going as if it was science, like, oh, and this is how it made me. 
And I'm like, I know I can't do that with myself. I'm too complicated a thing. The world's too complicated a thing. And I think you have to be willing to prioritize the story over the science, if that makes sense. They're different epistemological layers. Um, and I think we've just, I don't know if we've lost touch with it. Maybe, maybe we've misunderstood science and the story at the same time in equally bad ways culturally both what we are as a friend and a brother and a, a co-worker and a soul progressing through life as as the uh, protagonist that we're all supposed to embody and someone who's supposed to understand what's healthy what's unhealthy um you know what what the solutions are for for certain planetary issues and things like that like we've misunderstood both of these things and until we can make them the same thing, both are lies. If if your subjective story doesn't mesh with any uh, rigorous data, then your subjective story is bullshit. You know, people say my lived experience of this justifies me telling you to, you know, stop talking or to be offended. I'm like, get out of here. But at the same time, when people say, uh, you know, meta-analysis was done on people who uh, drink whiskey, and I know you're a big fan of whiskey, uh, therefore, um, you know, this is, this is causing this in your life. Like, equally bullshit. That's not, that's not how science works. That's not how whiskey works. Um, and so it's a, it's a misunderstanding of information in, in this way. Um, and I think that's a breakdown related to the metaphysical breakdown that we've talked about, but things need to cohere. And I think we failed to help each other cohere. So I think a, a great position to have is if your friend is unvaccinated, you should, and let's say he's like us, he's 25, he's whatever. You should know why that makes sense. And if your friend is vaccinated and he's 25 or 26, you should also know why that makes sense. Uh, because I, I think I know both of those cases. And you don't have to do both. And also they're both your friends and also you love them. And what we've done is we've prioritized one over the other. So either the fact makes you divorce yourself from the social reality or the social reality creates a situation where you will reject any new fact um and so it's it's sort of not just a, a problem of group meaning or metaphysical grounding in culture it's also our science versus our humanity and choosing a side there so it would seem to me like how does how does this sort of epistemological conversation get back you know in some sense to like where our jumping off point was was sort of you know what do you do about the different pathologies of fear that sort of have informed essentially the, the two sides of the modern political debate. Um, Cause it seems to me like, like those, those fear that either the fear of death or the fear of the loss of way of life um, must adhere some in some wise to this problem of epistemology. And I don't pretend to have the answer here, but I, I'd like to maybe carve a little bit of a path here. And I think that it has to touch on two things that you mentioned earlier, Max. First of all was this idea that human beings are like storytelling creatures. There's actually some really interesting 
documentation that I read in uh, what was Harari, the Sapiens book. Yavol um, Noah Harari. Yeah, that's the guy. He talks about how there, he doesn't really go into any of the details, um, but I remember him, t- him saying that it's very likely perhaps that human speech developed precisely as a way to like gossip and to tell stories about each other, um, you know, back several hundred thousand years ago, which is, which is a pretty interesting like thing to think about because it means that like the way that we know each other is that we know each other by embedding them in stories and the ability to tell stories about people. And, and therefore it's like, well, all of a sudden, like I have to be able to abstract whatever layer of knowledge I'm talking about has to relate back to some kind of story purpose. It's like, at the end of the day, a scientific fact is totally useless if it does not inhere into your life somehow, right? And impact your story. And, and this is what I think is maybe the pathology of the modern day, right? And it's that we have these grand fears that are typically going to be determined by what our political leanings are. And yet we also don't necessarily relate those fears or those outcomes back to our own original stories. It's like, if you are afraid of the stranger, then like, why aren't you, you know, why are you nice to people that you, that you meet on the street? It's like, cause you probably are. It's like the fear shows itself to be a pathology when it can't inhere in your life in the way that you're living it on a day to day. And I think that this is sort of like the moral advice or like the moral grounding that's sort of here at the bottom of things is that what we actually need to do is develop a little bit of courage and a little bit of courage will go a long way, especially when fear is sort of the, the, the primary motivator in almost any discussion. It's like, bring it on, man. It's like, I kind of want the things that I need to need to the fearful things that I need to face because supposedly if it doesn't kill me, it'll make me stronger. Right. And so it's like, I'm interested in confronting those things that I should be fearful of. And I think this is why people love horror movies, right? There's actually something really satisfying about being terrified and like making it through the experience and like, you're stronger at the end, like you're more courageous And I think that we, if we could do this sort of more on a societal level, and it's like confront the things you're afraid of. And I think that what's going to happen is that the thing that you're afraid of is going to push on you and you're going to pull on it and you're going to, you know, move your point of view somewhere and it is going to move a little bit somewhere else as well. And where you're going to actually end up is a better place. And I think the, the whole, the whole story or point of, you know, Um, the hero journey is that if you confront the things that you're afraid of and then you bring the back the spoils of the confrontation to your community and share them that life is good you know and so like whether or not the thing you're afraid of is like you know so like I said for uh, at the at the top of the call like I'm reading some stuff right now that is incredibly challenging and presenting points of view and ideas that are just so far from like my Catholic metaphysics and understanding of like the structure of everything. And yet like in through encounter, like I, I have a genuine fear of some of these things that I'm reading. And yet 
like through reading them, I'm stealing myself to an understanding both of the ideas that are presented in these books, but also in the ideas that I have and hold. And like, as the, as a result, like I'm ending up a more polished, well-rounded person, you know, like through this, uh, through this uh, exploration. And I think that, you know, like that is how you tie together the broad kind of societal problems, the fear of death that you get from COVID or the fear of the straight fear of the stranger that's you know so much embedded in kind of um like right-wing anti-immigration policies like if you can confront those two fears as an individual and like have courage against something that what's going to happen and there's a difference between recklessness and courage right but it's like what's going to happen is you're going to move yourself to a place where you're, where you ultimately belong and so, and, and so with that in mind, I do want to pitch something that has been, like I've been thinking about with respect to COVID in particular, that we didn't really, I was hoping to like, it would come up more naturally in the conversation, but I think it's related here. Um, I don't know, you know, you, Max, I don't, I, I don't think that you are as familiar with the Harry Potter stories uh, as I am. Uh, I have not read all of the books, so gasp. Um, but I am an addict of the Harry Potter movies. I've probably seen them all probably 10, 15 times. And um, the Marvel movies, I also love. There's way more of those. So I haven't seen them all 10, 15 times, but I know for sure I've watched the phase one, two, three cycle, like two, three, four solid times each. Um, and what's so striking to me about the evil character in both Harry Potter and in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, is that it's actually the same character. And in, in Harry Potter, the name of that character is Voldemort. And if you just break that word down, Voldemort, like that is like French that says flight from death, fly from death. And that's precisely what Voldemort does. Um, he, he creates horcruxes and these horcruxes, he basically tears his soul into pieces and binds them to physical objects so that even if you kill his body, you can't kill him because he has many bodies embedded in these horcruxes. And his whole proposition is this fear of death that he has and this fear of the stranger that he has of non of non-magical people, right? Of wizards who are of not from non-magic families and he's the evil character right and he's trying to subjugate the magical world so that he can re-establish a pure blood order of living right and so this is like a very fascinating kind of like archetype of the right-wing fear that we've discussed on the podcast a lot and it's like that's it's interesting okay so what does that have to do with the marvel uh the marvel character well i think the marvel character is the same character but inflected on the opposite side of the political spectrum okay so i my my pitch to you here is that that voldemort is this sort of embodiment of the flight from death and the fear of the stranger and that on the other side in the marvel universe you have thanos and Thanos, his name is just the short form of Athanasius, which is comes from the Greek Athanatos, which means immortal, right? Athanatos, right? Against death. 
is what Thanos is. And what Thanos's goal is to do is to bring the life of the whole universe to a new level of appreciation and beauty by precisely killing half of everything that's alive. And that through that process of killing half of all that is living, then everybody who's remaining is no longer starving, is no longer fearful. They have so much to appreciate. They're the ones that are left. They're the remnant. And life is beautiful again. And I think that precisely the sort of fear of overpopulation or the impact that we're having on the earth um, that's kind of embedded in some of like the climate fears um, sort of like come through in Thanos. And so you have like the left-wing fear of death brought forth into an archetypal character. And you have the right-wing fear of death brought forward into the story as an archetypal character. And guess what? They're the evil characters. They're the wrong ones. They're the ones that the heroes have to defeat. And I think that this is precisely how all of this ties together. It's like what we cannot do is let these fears, whether it's the fear of death, fear of the stranger, fear of learning new things, fear of being wrong, fear of being a fraud, fear of being, you know, uh, whatever it is, fear of fear of rejection or failure. If you let fears motivate you and drive you to things, you become Thanos and you become Voldemort because fears drive people to evil. They do not drive people to good. And therefore, and like, and that makes sense because of what is a fear? A fear is a reaction against something. Whereas like a claim or a thought or an idea or a position or a person that you love is like an affirmation of something, a defense of something. And like, that's what the good is. And like, that's what Harry Potter is. He's an affirmation that guess what? Like these like muggle-born wizards are people and they're good and they're worth dying for. And, you know, on the other hand, the Avengers, it's like life itself is sacred. You don't just get to kill half of it for the sake of it being quote unquote better off. Like what you are not the person who can judge what better off means. And um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm very inspired by this line of thinking because I think that it just like gets back to the fact that what we need is more courage and like what we need to figure out how to do and like what the ultimate response to some of these societal problems is to no longer live in fear, but precisely to reject fear, to be courageous and to defend that which is good against that which is motivated by fear. I feel like I'm, I'm actually going to uh, struggle with uh, a response to that, mainly because, um, especially the the two archetypes you just drew are a bit too sentimental to me. <laughs> those those two trains of thought are a bit too alive in my own mind to uh, be able to get close to sometimes uh if that makes sense um but i think it, it's such a beautiful way of describing everything we've talked about tonight and i mean it goes back to our conversation of christ at the beginning um there's where does salvation come from uh which is the one who must die but the the irony built into the construction is um, those who run from death 
guarantee evil, whereas those who embrace death guarantee life and true life, genuine life, or the potential for flourishing. And it's such a paradox, and I don't think a lot of people truly appreciate this paradox in life. Um, but uh, the the Peterson construction of it is um, the more burden, uh, the more responsibility you take on in life, the more meaning you have, which is kind of a, a correlation. And burden and suffering are kind of correlates for death. Why don't we like to be cold and tired and uh, worn out? you know, late in the night doing something, whether it's for a kid or something, it's because it, it, those are symptoms of death. <laughs> you can die from those things. Um, and I I couldn't agree more. The, the thing that's popped into my head, the sort of visceral reaction I've had to many things that people have said in politics in the last few years, this has stuck with me, and I don't know how many people I've, I've actually shared this with, is um, the the phrase that'll come up in my head is someone will will say a sentence or uh, assert something and I'll go, oh, you fucking coward. And I think I, I've meant that precisely in the sense that you're talking about, which is like, don't you know that you're going to die? And if this at all is to mean anything, it has to be about more than you know the satisfaction of your being in life and i i love the way those two stories tie that together um i think potentially and maybe we can do a whole additional podcast on this but the real vacancy the real missing metaphysical piece the real missing social piece uh, etc comes down to a failure of courage because what is it that we face fear with that is courage and I feel like so much of our society our culture and our politics have been decided by fear we've almost lost uh, we've almost begun to look at any version of courage as either uh, contrarian irrational kind of teen spirit rebellion uh, or is ignorance, uh, or de indeed is aggression. Um, and so, you know, safety, safety in in those two stories um, is the ability for evil to come out. And that's fascinating to me. But so I don't. It, and this all comes together, Max, in the movie that you watched, uh, urged me to watch recently, which was The Green Knight. This is precisely his story, right? Because what happens to Gawain in that story is that the, he makes it finally to the Green Chapel and he's sitting there waiting to be beheaded by the Green Knight. And what he realizes, spoiler alert, what he realizes <laughs> is that the fear of death is futile. And anything you do motivated from the fear of death will make you a dreadful, awful, horrible human being and that it's not worth it because at the end you die anyway right like that's precisely what happens in Gawain's vision there like Anil, he sees himself become the corrupt deranged terrible human being that anybody who's motivated solely by the fear of death must become and so what he does is the most courageous thing he can do 
which is 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 shed his ability his he sheds his immortality and truly offers his neck to the green knight and embraces the death willingly and guess what happens the green knight lets him go because that's what life is really about and i think that this is why like the old monastic phrase memento mori remember your death has Mm -hmm. to be like just the thing that we remember all the time it's like you you have to be willing and be able to every morning wake up look at yourself in the mirror while you're brushing your teeth and say this might be the last one yeah is that okay with you yeah living your life like it's okay uh drive (laughs) Fine. exactly well and that's and that's what it has to be because truly death could come at any moment and it's that precisely that courage to live life to the fullest regardless of the fact that that death comes and it's the you know it's precisely the same courage that's like well i'm going to bring a family into the world despite the fact that you know for every child i have i'm in some sense implicitly creating a death sentence and it's like but guess what that's where the beauty comes. You know, yeah. the real fight against death is not the fear of death. It's the willing to live despite it. I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, my, my favorite quote in high school uh, was, sorry to be so specific about this, that came back to me in college was uh, Emerson uh, and Walden. And it was, uh, I went into the woods because I wished to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life uh, and see what it had to teach. So not when I come to die, I discover I had not lived. And it, it, it's, that, that quote was so powerful because um, apparently so many, so many lives have been lived that are just merely death. Uh, in their attempt to preserve life. Um, apparently, there's a way of living that is a death itself. And maybe we need to talk about that more. Well, I, uh, I'm i not sure where we arrived, and I'm not really sure where we departed from and how we got here. But I can tell you that, like, deeply morally, where I'm, where, what I'm feeling motivated to do from this conversation is to continue doing a few of the things that I've been trying to do, but like in a more earnest way is to really focus on the things that matter, the eternal things, and to really forget the things that don't matter and don't spend a whole lot of time on. Um, I considered having my, my new year's resolution this year to be focused on the eternal things um, to be my new year's resolution. It didn't finally make the cut, Um, there was another, there was another theme that I liked just a little bit better. Um, but nonetheless, like it's been on my mind and it's like, I think that what this whole conversation is inspiring me to be is I just want to be the best version of myself and I want to be, you know, the husband I'm supposed to be. I want to be the son that I'm supposed to be the brother, the colleague, the, you know, the product manager, uh, the coworker, everything. It's like what this is about is about life itself and we can continue to focus on a bunch of things that divide us that we can't don't have any power to control um and get angry about them and upset and yell you know into a megaphone on twitter or whatever 
and find ourselves just back in the same problems of being mortal creatures with immortal imaginations. And that doesn't sound very worth it. So, I mean, I, I don't know about you, but like, despite the fact that this conversation has felt it at times very stretched and fragmented and I weren't, wasn't really sure how we got from one place to another, like what I'm feeling, you know, very viscerally is that like, there's a deep love for my fellow man that I need to continue to cultivate. And like, regardless of where they come from, what their creed or background is, and I need to like double down on that. And I need to double down on, on really living, living my life with courage, confronting the things that I'm afraid of. Um, and, you know, attempting to just be the best, yeah, the best version of myself possible. I, I don't, uh, I, I'm actually kind of terrified if you, if you manage that, uh, you know, what might the world be if people did that? Uh, I was reminded of the phrase, uh, and I guess I'll just end my part on this, which is, um, in, uh, I'm forgetting the precise moment, but uh, during the crucifixion, uh, the phrase, uh, forgive them for they know not what they do. And I know that has very, very deep theological meanings and I'm attaching it to something much, much more superficial. But uh, it, if we could learn to look at the other people on the other side of anything that way, uh, we might actually end up loving them. We might actually end up be willing to die for them, which is not to fly from life. Uh, the Voldemort is not to protect life. Um, so the willingness to sacrifice uh, for those that know not what they do. And um, yeah, I think that's that's all I could hope for for myself. Certainly ends a lifestyle of resentment if you can constantly even the ones that it's easy to be the most angry about like i mean for me personally i carry a, around a lot of anger and resentment about the way that covid has gone and how it's been handled and the incompetencies at every level um yeah what a challenge forgive them for they know not what they do yeah i'm gonna have Perfect. to take that one home max I, I don't know that there's a, a better bow to tie in this. Um, we're a couple hours in here, so maybe we should just call it. I think we should. Uh, I hope it was good. I felt like I've been in a few different dreams and woken up at various times. Yeah, exactly. That's how it feels. That's definitely how it feels. Uh, but as always, discover a little bit more of the world. And I hope we can be you know, more and more refined as we do this. But uh, I really appreciate it. And yeah, thank you for the conversation. Yeah, thank you, Max. Have a wonderful night. And thanks everyone for listening.